every time I take this seat, and it's only been three times, this is the fourth, I really have a very, very, um, just a very kind of fluttery feeling inside, and also a hope that what it is that I will share with you will be things that will be worth it. And I tried to, in this topic especially, it's one that's, um, one that is a challenging one for me, the abandoning of unhelpful mind states. And I have thought quite a bit about it over the last months. And so hopefully I'll be sharing some things that will be interesting to you. But one of the things I noticed is, I don't know how many of you were here on May the 11th, but Shanti Soul gave a talk on the right efforts. Mm-hmm. How many of you heard that talk about the rattlesnake and the walking through the desert? So it's not too many people. Maybe only a few. So then last week, um, my Dharma pal, Jim Podolsky, talked about the first right effort and confessed to me that he had spent quite a bit of time on the abandoning of unhelpful mind states. But at any rate, I'm sure it'll be fine because I'll tell you, these, these are definitely ideas that one can hear more and more and from more and more different angles. When you take the basic meditation class here, whether it's from Gil or from any of us, um, it can be very useful to do it more than once, just to hear what that person has, what their journey has been to, um, in the area of mindfulness and meditation. So, um, the Noble Eightfold Path, we hear about that Noble Eightfold Path. And the thing that's interesting is that effort falls in the third quadrant, and I, I definitely think of it as the foundation quadrant, and that's the quadrant of mental training and development. The first one is wisdom, interesting, which is right view and right intention. The second has to do more with um, um, conduct, right action, right uh, livelihood, and right speech. But this third one begins with right effort, and it might as well begin or end with right effort because effort is so important in terms of of what we do in um, abandoning these unhelpful mind states. So I know that some of you who were here last week were given a homework assignment. So I was wondering if there's anybody who would like to say anything about what happened when you were looking at that moment that Sivananda was talking about before you move into a certain direction or think a certain thought. Did anybody have anything in that area that they would like to share with us? No, okay, that's okay. Um, Not a problem. So in our right effort, what we're really thinking about is the energy, the energy that's demanded of a particular task. And the important thing here is that it has two other components, two things that have to do with right effort, one being mindfulness and the other being, of course, right concentration. And in each person's life, the effort is really crucial because nobody can tell you, here's the effort you need to take, here's the path you need to take, here's exactly what you need to do, because each one of us are dealt different things all the way through our lives. When I came to the assignment of having this talk, I didn't realize that something I'm going to be telling you about in a little bit here was going to have a lot to do with my ability to abandon unhelpful mind states. And that came up about a month ago. So that'll hopefully keep you wanting to stay alert and stay with us this evening because it was quite a quite an interesting thing that came up very closely related to what we'll be talking about tonight. 
So there are the four endeavors. Last year, last week you heard about uh, Jim talking about guarding against the arising of unhelpful mind states, and um, unhel- excuse me, unhelpful mind states, right? And now tonight, the abandoning of those mind states after they have arisen. So when we say helpful, sometimes you'll hear the word skillful, sometimes you'll hear the word wholesome in our Buddhist parlance. But one thing you very seldom hear about, and it's one of the things that draws me to this practice, is right and wrong. Because right and wrong can really, really put us into a place of you know, feeling less than or I'm not measuring up or whatever that, that really comparing and all kinds of things happen when we talk about right and wrong all the way up to you know, very high level things that are happening in this world right now for that matter. So we don't talk that much about right or wrong. We talk about skillful or unskillful, wholesome, unwholesome, uh, desirable, that kind of thing. But toward what? You know, wholesome in what way? What, what are we, why is this important? And what will it help happen in our lives? Well, one of the most important things that does happen with it is it has an immediate effect on the hindrances. The hindrances are either fanned and made larger and, and bigger, or they are kind of made lesser by our efforts and by our uh, wholesome states. So what are the hindrances? Anybody know about the five hindrances? The Buddha is really big on lists. Very big on lists. He's probably maybe even somewhat obsessive if you think about it. You can get on our website and you just see dozens of lists. Three this, eight that, four this, five that. And so it's really quite amazing. And I'm, I'm seeing in this talk as I was preparing, they're really somewhat related to one another. Just like these last three, the mental and the, the, the mental states, uh, the mental parts of the Eightfold Path are uh, very much all interwoven. So what they are is desire or you know, sensing, which often will move toward craving. Second one is, um, um, where am I going here, sorry. Second one is ill will or hatred. Third, dullness or drowsiness. They're also termed sloth and torpor, that kind of sinking feeling that you sometimes have, maybe on the cushion, maybe elsewhere in your life. Uh, restlessness and worry, anxiety goes with that. And lastly, doubt. It's really the right thing for me, that kind of thing. So those are our defilements, or our uh, things that we are that have a tendency to be fanned by unhealthy mind states. They kind of go together, they're hand in glove. But mindfulness is is such a key because it helps us to see what those hindrances are right when they happen, right between those thoughts that Sivananda was talking about. I thought that was so interesting, the way he's talking about that interval between the thoughts. And if you can get in there, right in there, and it happens a lot in my marriage. Here I am, right here, and I, I have a choice because my husband, Jeff, who also practices, luckily, he'll say something and I'll sort of want to go into this certain next thing. And then... It might have to do with his paperwork. He doesn't like to do his paperwork very much for his managed care clients. He likes his profession, but he doesn't like the paperwork. Now then I can start start to move into the fix-it mode. And well, if you would this or that. But what I find is every time I do that, then something else comes and it's never 
any good. It never ends up in any kind of a helpful, wholesome, skillful, or positive, non-hindrance kind of a way. So just to be able to stop at that moment and I actually verbalize it, I will say, I know this is not going anywhere good right now. So let's just stop. Let's just stop. And it really, really works. And I can tell you that until I started this practice eight, nine years ago, something like that, that would not have been in my, <laughs> would not have been in my toolkit at all to stop. It would have just been, I'll just try it again. Or maybe these words will work. Or maybe if I make a good meal or I'm, you know, smiling when I say it or I'm whatever. It's simply that little interval when you, you just have that chance. And mindfulness, we're not sitting here on the cushion to be sitting here on the cushion. As one of my favorite teachers said, um, and my first teacher really at Kaiser, I took uh, the mindfulness-based stress reduction class. That's how I got into this practice. And he said, you know, the formal practice is everything that's on the cushion. The informal practice is everything else. So there's no escape. Once you make the decision to be part of this practice, there's no escape if you wish to take it seriously, that is, because it's always there. On the cushion, formal. Off the cushion, informal. And the informal is the place where, quite frankly, I see the most progress in my life, by far. Because on the cushion, I'll be telling you a little more about what happens in my mind um, as we go along here tonight in what we'd say we'd really would be wanting to abandon these states I'm going to be telling you about in my world. Um, so we're always in practice. We're always in practice. And the practice enables us on the cushion when we can slow the mind down some that those intervals, those little spaces that he was talking about here maybe allow us to come in with something really more helpful or more skillful or more wholesome. So now I'd like to read you the rest of what Eknath Ashwaran said about that quote from Sivananda, especially if, oh my gosh. Oh, here we go. Good. I'm glad I, I took the um, bookmark out. Through meditation and the enthusiastic observance of disciplines, such as slowing down and keeping the mind one-pointed, we can learn to do something that sounds impossible. When thoughts are tailgating each other, we can slip into the flow of mental traffic, separate thoughts that have locked bumpers, and slowly squeeze ourselves in between. It sounds terribly daring, the kind of stunt for which professionals in the movies are paid in four figures, probably five or six by now. Yet most of us critically underestimate our strength. We can learn to step right in front of onrushing emotional impulses such as fury and little by little, inch by hard one inch, start pushing them apart. This takes a lot of solid muscle in the form of willpower, or effort, shall we say, for this evening. But just as with muscles, we can build up willpower with good, old-fashioned practice. Once you can do this, you'll find that there is not the slightest connection between another person's provocation and your response. There seemed to be a connection because your perceptions were crowding together. Now that those thoughts have been separated, even for a hair's breadth, your response has lost its compulsive force. I mean, I, I just think that's so wise. And I've just, just in preparing for this talk this evening, it is probably the main reason I want to practice is to be able to widen out those spaces a little more so that I can squeeze in something skillful. 
which in fact may be nothing. <laughs> Maybe eventually I don't even have to say anything, you know, when Jeff does, you know, says one of these things about his paperwork or whatever, or just smile at him in a loving way or whatever, you know, something. It doesn't even always, by all means, have to be words, now does it? It could be really silence. In silence we can really be very there with somebody that we love, as I have found many times, um, especially as people get older. You know, one of the things we don't talk about very much in this practice is uh, the dying process. And I'm hoping to do a Dharma talk sometime soon because I've been fortunate enough to be with two people in my family actually as they were dying. And in silence, it's an incredible thing that happens there. So right effort, that's that point at which we don't have to do anything. We're just there. So the Buddha had, as a good physician would have, he had... Here's a series of things that we want to do something about, and here's the prescription. So I'll share with you some of the things that he talked about, the prescription, and some of my personal experience with these unwholesome mind states. So techniques for abandoning unskillful thoughts. First, we can replace an unskillful or an unhelpful thought with a helpful one. We went on a uh, the, Medi- the uh, Memorial Day retreat about two weeks ago. And um, every now and then, Jeff will, on a retreat, it was a four-day retreat, he'll give me some chocolate. And uh, he'll just sort of put it on my place there when we're eating. Of course, it's a silent retreat. And uh, I am really happy about this because he leaves three of them perfect. It's lunchtime. I'll have one now. I'll have one after dinner. I mean, this is a big deal, right? Silence. I don't get into my usual thing of being able to talk to people. I've got all this sensory deprivation that I'm so used to being addicted to. And number three, the third will be at bedtime. Perfect. So then, down the first one after lunch, down the second one after dinner, and Gil does a talk on craving. I thought, what a creep. You know, this, is not, this is not one bit fair, I can assure you. And so, and not only is it on craving, but he talks about, and I don't remember the exact words, it doesn't matter, but he talks about riding the horse of craving, you know, kind of like a rodeo rider and staying with or the wave or something. I forget the exact analogy, but boy, I was picturing it because that chocolate was burning a hole in my pocket. I can assure you. And it's now like 8.45 and I've been there since 6 o'clock. You know, okay. So you got the basic picture. And so I decide, okay, I am not going to eat this piece of chocolate. Although well, it was a very good chocolate. It's not some cheap Hershey stuff. You know, these, this is the chocolate we really like. So it's a big deal. So I go back to the privacy of my spot there to sleep. And I keep it. Don't eat it. And then I think, I actually love chocolate for breakfast. It's fine with me. I mean, not, not as a meal, but I have no problem with you know, any, any portion of the 24-hour day that I could eat chocolate. And that's not me. That's not true for you. But just picture what your craving is, and that, then you'll kind of relate to this, I'm sure. So the morning comes, and I went on a little walk, and the, it was still there, kind of a little bit softish now, you know. And I'm still dealing with this craving, but I decide to start noting when is it that I reach for it or that I note it, that I even think about it there in my pocket because I decided I shouldn't leave it in the car. That would be cheating, right? I need to have it on my person. So I did. And I realized there was a connection. Here comes mindfulness. There was a connection. And the connection was 
when I would think of it, the chocolate, was actually a time when I was a little sad or concerned or a little anxious or something. There definitely was a correlation between the two. So, no, I didn't pop it in my mouth and ate it. <laughs> eat it. I um, told the group about it. We had a little group thing. But what I decided to do was use it almost as an amulet. So I took this craving object and made it into a little amulet, a symbol for just the kindness and the lovingness of him kind of thinking about me and having those chocolates. So I would just put it, my hand in my pocket, think about it, and it was really very wonderful and truly never felt like eating it, not even once, because I had transferred to something that was really more helpful, more helpful, and why not have a good feeling and a loving feeling toward others and having that be the little object that, uh, that kind of brought that out. So it was really very wonderful. Um, making mother happy. There's one that I did for years. Um, I was the youngest of older parents, and my mother uh, would be happy a lot, but as she got older, she lost a lot. And if there's one thing we could realize about elders is imagine all the things that you lose as you get older. She lost her eyesight in terms of macular degeneration. She lost the ability to a lot of the um, uh, handicraft types of things she could do because she couldn't see the knitting and such. So there were so many losses that she became sort of an angry person at least. And um, we'd go to the restaurant and she'd stop the waiter, you know, right in there as they're walking along the aisle and say, I need some water now. And, you know, we'd tell her that that really wasn't appropriate behavior or something. But it wasn't easy to be around her. And I insatiably would try to come up with some, some way, some activity, some special thing that she was going to enjoy. And quite honestly, that was a waiting for Godot situation. <laughs> I mean, it was not going to happen. It simply was not going to happen. And luckily, it couldn't have been more than maybe three months before she died, um, I decided just to be there with her on this visit. So, instead of saying, we'll do this, you know, we'll go for a ride, we'll go do this, we'll do I said, what would you like to do? And so she said she'd like to go for a ride. So instead of saying, you know, do you want to do this, do you want to do this, I or kind of have something key in my mind, um, we stopped at, a, at uh, Roberts of Woodside, the little grocery store up on Woodside Road. And um, I said, is there anything you'd like? And she said, yes, yeah, she'd like some grapes. So I went in the store and got the grapes, and we just sat there in the car, happily eating these grapes. And frankly, it was a far more... I still remember that very, very simple act of having these grapes together. And after chasing after something that would make life better for her or easier for her, whatever, instead of just being there with her and just kind of coming up with whatever came next, it was a very, very important lesson for me. And um, when we deal with others, I think the simpler the better, really, and to really pay attention and just being with them especially elders, is sometimes the most important thing we can be instead of kind of looking at our watch and knowing that this is kind of got to do something else, got to do something else. More just being there for whatever period that you are there can be very, very important. So I took this very unhelpful thought of there's got to be something I can do to a much more helpful one of just letting it go and just letting it all be and just spending time together. So... Um, 
the uh, the um, object of, of ill will. Another obvious one: hatred, anger, not anger. Excuse me, ill will or dislike, hatred. Uh, the antidote for that is loving kindness. And about a, mm, two months ago, Donald Rothberg came here and did a talk, uh, did a day, a day on metta, or loving kindness, and uh, where we're wishing others well, wishing others, um, may they be happy, may they be well. And he talked about driving. My commute's about 20 minutes long. It's all on the freeway, except for a couple of blocks, predominantly up 92 and then 280. The number of judgments that I could come up with in that 20 minutes until I took this antidote, which I'm going to tell you about, about BMWs being the weirdest drivers in the world. It's my sorrow to all of you who have BMWs, but, but knowing every time there was a strange driver on 280, it was a BMW. I just knew this was the case. You know, motorcyclists, just why are they doing this? Why are they even... I thought big trucks couldn't be on 280 and here's this great big truck now. So I just, all this mental anguish and you know, verbal anguish within that I'd come up with. And I decided that every time that I had one of these attack thoughts, I would just make the simple, simple wish, may they be safe, may they be happy. And that has absolutely transformed those thoughts they simply don't happen anymore. I don't know how much of it has to do with being on the cushion long enough and saying these things long enough or you know, the wish for others' happiness, my own and others, but it's almost instantaneous now and it's been so relieving and it just makes life so much better. And when, you know how these folks kind of split lanes, the motorbikes and so on, and just to say, may they be safe, you know, may they be happy, it's just a whole different way of, of feeling instead of this incredible anger that you can get about somebody cutting you off or doing something that's irritating to you. So I can recommend it. I don't know if it'll work for you, but it's been extremely helpful for me. And it can come very quickly, and it's a very quick sentence, so it kind of gets in that little space that he was talking about here, so you can get it in there very quickly, and then you don't want to give it up because you know there's something really wrong when somebody drives like that. There's something... They're not really paying good attention, frankly, in the first place, to drive in an unsafe way or to ride a motorbike in an unsafe way. So we certainly do wish them well. We do wish them safety and happiness. And um, it's really worked very well. Dullness and drowsiness. And uh, for this, the the Buddha talked about um, maybe picturing a bright light or taking a brisk walk. Or lastly, reflection on death. They'll have a place a little bit later. Um, The fourth, restlessness, anxiety, worry. One of the key antidotes to that is deep and full breathing and just concentrating on that in and out, all the way in and all the way out. That can be very good for one's anxious or worried thoughts. Lastly, doubt. And here he recommends investigation and asking questions. Don't try to just paper it over when you have doubt, but really investigate it and get in there and try to figure out what's going on here. So now I'd like to tell you about the graduate school lesson that I've had over the last four weeks that relates to all three of those. A friend of mine about three years ago, two years ago, noticed this mole on my neck. 
and she said, I should really have this looked at. And um, so I went to a dermatologist, and the dermatologist took a photo, took a picture of it, and said that um, that it was uh, just to notice if it gets any any changes in shapes. So um, about three months ago, a mole fell off my back when I was showering. So I used this mole as an excuse to go to the derm. This, I should really go this time, and I hadn't noticed any change in this other mole. And um, so I went to the, to the uh, as I said, to the derm, and he decided to biopsy this irregular mole on my neck. And um, the next week, I came into the office to have the result of the biopsy, and I wasn't having any problem at all because I knew I was totally healthy and there was really no problem here, so why should I have an issue? But I noticed the nurse was certainly jumpy. And, and she truly was, and she's sort of waiting for the doctor to come in and kind of scurrying around. And I thought, there's something wrong with this mole. And in fact, that is the fact. And it was a, um, a melanoma, which can be an extremely serious form of fast-moving cancer. And so this was something that just to come up to the, the reality of the possibility, I mean, it just, whoosh, everybody, every, every wave you can imagine just came at me just so quickly in those moments. And things like anger at that young dermatologist who took the foot, I mean, thoughts were just going, and I really had to collect myself before I got back in the car and drove home. And the doctor said, he did say he tried to relieve my mind by saying that it was probably one that was totally contained. It's called in situ. You know, it's, it hasn't spread, but it is a spreading type. It clearly says here. And I thought that he said it was a four, four millimeters. Well, that's the second lesson. That's another lesson I learned about this. Besides having those thoughts that just go like crazy, the unwanted thoughts, of course, and thinking, I can't believe I'm going to be doing this talk in four weeks with this kind of a thing happening in my life. But knowing it was really the right thing that that would happen, um, and I talked to this friend of mine who, very special, just a golf buddy at De Anza, and she said, "When you find out about that biopsy, you give me a call." So I thought, "Well, I'm going to tell her about this," and I said, "It's a four." Well, it turns out two or three things. First of all, her husband had um, stage three melanoma, which is very serious, and had to have pretty major surgery and other things. But he's also the president of the board of the Melanoma Research Foundation for the United States because he is so keenly interested in this whole thing now and he is a survivor and he's doing very well. She's a nurse. I just happen to be golfing with them and he starts telling me, oh, if it's a number four, you know, I don't want to scare you. But, so I look on the web and believe me, he didn't have to scare me when I started reading about what number four could be. And there's where I learned another lesson, which is, Anytime you have a report done for any medical condition, be sure that you get a pathology report because um, the pathology report clearly showed that it was a point four. Oh. <laughs> it was a lot. And we just, you know, we're so, we're so kind of not active in our own medical care so often that we don't get a copy of the report, you know, and we don't really know what's happening or we go into denial. I have gone through all these things I'm telling you about. That's why I know they're true, even since this thing has happened to me. But um, 
since this thing has happened, not to me. That's another thing is kind of personalizing things because when you, that whole personalization can really create jangle in ourselves. Um, but when this happened, just to, to realize, know so many, learn so many things so quickly, and then to go into a silent retreat. And I talked to Gil, and I said, Gil, I said, um, you know, this had happened, and I got kind of teary because this was really just the first week. And I didn't want to go into retreat without talking to him first. And he said, well, this will be quite something to practice with. You know, and then I got mad at him, and, but I also realized it was totally correct. It was totally something to practice with, no doubt about it. And it's been an amazing time. Um, and one of the things that was incredibly sweet during that retreat was everything I did, like when I went on the usual walk I would do, I paid so much more attention because I thought, what if this were, in fact, the last time I met Jokoji? And it, was, it just opened my eyes in so many ways. You know, I would look around and see things in a much more, everything felt much more vivid. And I don't know what will come from here. I, my understanding is that everything is really quite fine. By the way, I, I puzzled, should I talk about this or should I not talk about this? But it's so at my heart right now and so in you know this talk really that I, I thought that it was really probably the best thing I could talk about versus just something more clinical or you know lacking in personal. So I, Gil apologized the other day for talking about something personal. I thought, oh great, maybe I shouldn't talk about this. But, um, or being too personal or talking too much about personal matters. But it just felt like the right thing. So... Please, I apologize if it isn't something that's useful to you. Um, but it's the whole, the whole weekend just had a whole different flavor. And so many things went right on it. And of course, there was even a little dying cat that happened to be there, Shanti's cat. Um, why would this happen? You know, and he, he remained alive through the entire weekend, but he only drinks water. And he only had drunk, drunk water for nine days. I was watching him and there was milk and water, just had a little lap of water and that was it. And then he'd sort of walk away in kind of a weakish fashion, but he lived through the whole retreat and I thought, boy, isn't that interesting that I would have this other visual and visceral example of, of death when I'm, you know, just kind of paying attention more to that kind of thing in, in my own life. And I was watching other people too and there's something about being around something that's dying that's really very invigorating. Because you, you just, I think anyway, it's, it's really a way to see some of the preciousness of our own life. To know that this cycle happens and this little being here, you know, he wasn't a very big guy, kind of that big. But that all of us will experience this and all of us have experienced it with different loved ones and so on. But it, there's really a lesson here. And um, so it was really a very rich time to, to have him around. But once again, really kept me on this same kind of a, of a, of a track. Um, but the, the one other thing that happened in relationship to this, which was significantly important, was to me, I don't know how many of you have heard of the term of synchronicity, meaningful coincidence, but when I look at you know, the, the doubt or, gee, I wonder why this happened or why is that happening now or whatever, so many things in my life are synchronistic the real things that really matter are they seem to be so kind of connected one to another and the way we really see this is in retrospect so synchronicity is a Jungian term I believe for meaningful coincidence 
not just kind of, you know, you happen to see somebody, you know, at Safeway that you know or something like that, but more something that you can really tie back to something useful or something really important in your life. And to have those people just happen to be taking those golf classes, it could have happened two months or not classes, but little golf group, for him to be there, for them to be there. They've called me six or seven times. Now you call me when this happens. They've been very, very supportive of me in a very positive way, these friends that I ordinarily only see during that 10-week period. That's, that's the only time I see them really during the school year is during that period. So it's, it's, it's a wonderful thing in retrospect to appreciate those things that can kind of remove our doubt that the coincidences going forward and forward that really mean something in our lives. So, um, uh, see, the next thing I'd like to talk about a little bit is um, the the other antidotes that he talks about, the deliberate diversion of attention. So, just plain redirecting attention to something else. That's another kind of way in which we can deal with our our issues around um, abandoning thoughts. Just what you're thinking now, just move it somewhere else by sheer will. And sometimes it takes some pretty strong sheer will to do that. Um, going to the opposite, uh, uh, the opposite way of looking at things. So instead of turning away from the thing, actually immersing in it, just as I told you with the chocolate, just really looking at what was happening with that chocolate. And for me, the thing that I've really been working on most significantly lately is the planning mind. That is my nemesis. And uh, also a very strong trait and a positive trait because what I do for a living significantly requires planning. I do fundraising. It's really important that when we fundraise, we really know where we're headed this year. What do we need to do to get there? How are we going to do this? What are some of the various methods? So planning is very important. In all the professional jobs I've ever had, it's very important and very positive trait. But it's not something that's going to be useful at all or skillful on the cushion because it just you know, puts, you in, puts me into a spin. So I've really been kind of turning inward on that, that uns, un, unbeneficial or unskillful mind state and looking at what am I really doing when I'm planning? And three or four things have come up so far. One of the first is, um, I don't know how many of you, the rest of you have that kind of a planning as being one of the key ways in which you have an issue when you're trying to sit on the cushion and follow your breath. Whoop. Off you go to either something in the future. My other one, of course, is regret about the past. So it's either something in the future that I have to make sure is going to go just right or some wish that I had done something differently in the past. So getting to the present can be an issue in times like that. Um, so one thing I noted was that it has a tendency to make me less anxious about the future. doesn't mean it's useful, but... That is, it's a useful thing, but it might be even more useful to breathe a little more deeply at that point and not have to think that I have to move into a planning mode for what's coming up. Um, Another thing when I look at planning is many things in my life, we had sort of a father knows best kind of a household when I was young. And um, I don't know if maybe some of you are not even old enough to remember, you know, Kitten and all the, uh, get the gang. But, um, you know, Robert Young and... Whatever. Anyway, it was, and I, I was, of course, kitten. I was the little one, right? The little of the three. Brother was ten years older, and my sister seven years older than I. And um, then all of a sudden, my mother went to work. 
when I was 12. And she had been Sally, you know, Father Knows Best, Sally Homemaker. I forgot her name, the wife's name, June or something. No, that was June Cleaver. But anyway, I forget. Whatever her name was, she was, she was definitely the homemaker and a wonderful homemaker. Food, sewing, wonderful creative things and so on. But um, uh, when I was 12, she went to work. And she became liberated. I just want you to know. This was in 1955. But I'll tell you, that apron was off and <laughs> as far as the general world. And she now had money that she could buy that sofa that my dad thought was really not that bad anyway. And you know, she could do things that she wanted to do with this money that she made. And it was really, really important for her. But also, it was a kind of a domestic intranquility and imbalance that came in the family that frankly, I'm not sure it ever went away until the last year of their marriage. She became more kind of strident. And that's not to say that everybody shouldn't, you know, have a feeling of independence and all that, but it, it was a really huge shift and one that I never could have planned for and also one that really was such a big sea change that I felt very kind of at that stage of my life. You're also just kind of moving toward teen years. It was when I was 12. And so it was really a very kind of a shaking thing to me that what was there, just the way it was, in addition to which, I might also add, my sister and brother both got married. So I went from having, you know, three, being three siblings to having, being an only child, really, in about a year. So all these things happened very abruptly and suddenly. And so I think that when I look at some of these, and then at the age of about um, 20, my brother um, uh, was stricken with schizophrenia. And so the family just in general has gone through a tremendous amount of mental health issues and um, things that we never could have really planned for but maybe this planning mind makes me think that I can be in control of some really very sad and very very difficult things and um, so I am just trying to get more and more to the core of it and I, I cannot tell you that I've gotten to the absolute core of it but I I'm very tired of it let's just put it that way and that's one good thing about this little diagnosis of having this hopefully as I said very okay mole that's now longer no longer with me um, but it's um, it, it, it's caught me at a place where I really don't want to waste any time and just as Gil said even though it angered me a little when he said it at the retreat gee this will really have kind of an impact on could have an impact on your practice um, I really think that it has because I've kind of allowed that planning mind to, in that really very unhelpful state, to just kind of drift along for several years um, and just be very happy about it. And I still am happy about the positive things I see off the cushion, the informal practice. But the formal definitely, you know, needs some, uh, some tuning up, some reining in, and some, uh, some improvement. And uh, that's something I really want it will continue to work on and I'll keep you posted as going forward how it goes because um, it's probably true for some of you as well then the last resort and I don't know how many of you here were here for Jim last week but he said people did not like this one at all and it was suppression suppression of the the unhelpful state you know bearing down on it you know like a wrestler with a wrestling something to the ground or you know putting your tongue up against the roof of your mouth and clenching your teeth anyway it all sounds very very um, uh, uh, I don't know what you want to say but pretty intense and uh, maybe at times that really is just what's needed 
one of the things I really liked was Ajahn Amaro. By the way, he'll be here in two weeks. Um, no, week after next. So in about ten days he'll be here. He's one of our monks. And he said one of the things he does when the mind is going is he just gives it a very firm admonition. Not now. <laughs> so it's kind of like heel, you know, for a dog. But sometimes we really do need to put the old choke chain, you know, on the mind and just let it know that this is not the time for this. Um, and it is a way to deal with this unhelpful mind state and I'm assuming that's what he's really referring to. Sometimes when you read it in, in the older text, it sounds, it doesn't sound like something you'd, you'd be doing, but I think that's what he's probably really referring to is that whole just feeling, not now, no, just let it go. We're just not going there right now. And um, the other thing that's good about that one is it doesn't imply that not later. So you're not, you're not kind of letting that thought just you know, do its thing or just disappear. You're not saying that. You're saying you'll deal with that. But while I'm following my breath, while I'm here on the cushion, that thought is not going to be useful, not going to be helpful or skillful to do. So not now. Just as the Buddha said on his Night of Enlightenment, or is said to have said, this is all verbal, we don't have any of it really written down except many centuries later, um, I see you, Mara, for the temptations. I see you. So, so often, the, the unskillful states that we have, they don't happen if we see them, they, if we really know they're there. Another wise person once said to me, you're talking about the conditioning that we have, you know, the, the knee-jerk reaction type conditioning as a person, and she said, conditioning thrives on its ability to remain undetected. Very true. So do our unhelpful mind states thrive on their ability to remain undetected. So when we put the spotlight on them or when we do some of these various tools that I've, I've mentioned in the talk here, it goes a long way towards um, helping us to abandon them. So, um, and they'll of course be dispelled more quickly then, which is really, really important. Tan Jeff, another one of my very favorite monks who was here uh, in early May, I think it was May 1st, and he gave some suggestions for disengaging with the story. Well, what is the story if not the un unhelpful or unskillful mind state? And I, I really do love these. The first one, I'm saving my favorite for last. Would I want to die in the middle of this? <laughs> okay. Probably not, right? The 27th time I plan how I'm going to talk to Martha about this event we're doing and how I wish it were something else, I truly would not want, you know, I'd like to have something a little better for me at that stage. Um, second, just plain, oh, here, this is very related to what um, uh, Ajahn Amaro said, just plain stop if you're able. And don't feel a compulsion to finish the story or stay till the end. You know, just stop and that's it. If you can do that. And I've done it a few times and it, it does work, believe it or not. Sometimes you might go right back into it in the next chapter or something. But if you just stop, that's really fine. Don't feel a compulsion to go to the end. Uh, the third one, real interesting, see the universality of the pattern or the story. And what that does is it depersonalizes it. So it's unhelpful, you know it's unhelpful, but you see it as, you know, hopefully what some of the things I've said tonight you can relate to. The planning mind, maybe several of you have that. I hope it's useful so that we see that it's not just about silly me. 
and that I'm just sort of defective in some way. Um, when I first came to the center, um, well, not the center, excuse me, because we weren't a center, we were like a nomadic tribe for several years, you know, going from one place to another. But I was sure that the really good meditators were the ones that were on the floor. You know, I on the chair, this, this was not, I just was sort of slightly off the beat here. I just, obviously, if I were really good, I'd be on the floor. And, you know, I spent probably a year and a half or so concerned about that before I realized that it really wasn't an issue. Um, and obviously it wasn't, but, but I did kind of just stay there with that. And every now and then if I have sort of a creaky place that's really bugging me and I want to sit on the chair for a period, you know, five, six weeks or whatever, it's, it's still a little funny, but it's certainly not the way it was when I first began nine, nine years ago. But that story, that personalization that we have for the story, um, if we can depersonalize, it really does lighten up some of that um, unwholesome or unhelpful uh, thought that's getting at us. And my favorite. <laughs> if this were a movie, would I pay to get in? <laughs> okay. It's almost like enough said at that point. What we do with these very, very unhelpful, unskillful, unwholesome, whatever you want to say, mind states, and then we'll go into another one and another one, or the same one over and over. You know, in my case with the planning thing, it's just so angst-producing and so unnecessary. And when I get rid of it and just do the deep breath or pay attention to it, and, you know, there might be something good here too. So it's not... As, as Gil once said in, in, a, in an effort talk, hover for a while. You know, don't be in a big hurry to go rushing off. Stay there for a while too oftentimes. The, the, the prescription could often be to hover there and see what's going on with this thought. So not to just immediately, kind of with a choke chain, get off of this right now, um, but to be gentle about it. And um, I wish you all kinds of luck in terms of your movies and um, that uh, they're ones that are useful and helpful and um, deal with the hindrances in a way that really works for all of you. So at this point, I'll entertain any questions or thoughts or um, any special personal experiences that you'd like to give. Yes, please use the mic because, yes, I noticed that when I... Um, Thank you. When we... When we hear something on the web, I hope you all know we have the Audio Dharma website. So anything that's any kind of issue that you're dealing with, you can go down the list and see a talk that might be just the kind of thing that you need. So please get on Audio Dharma. It's, it's a wonderful, wonderful website, all very free, and you can just listen right there and then, or download it onto uh, iPods or whatever. Yes. Oh, thank you very much for your talk. I yes. enjoyed it. You're welcome. Um, I'd like to get back to the chocolate. <laughs> so would I. No. Yeah, it, it's a, a favorite topic. Um, yeah. I don't know how you differentiate between uh, lusting or desire for that chocolate yeah. or simply saying, I have a preference for this chocolate. Yeah. I enjoy chocolate and I'm right. noting that my husband gave it to me with love and consideration mm -hmm. and I'm choosing to eat all three pieces right now right. or ration them out. I, I, I don't really see the distinction. In my particular case, I can just tell you that it was such a, an interesting thing that I was really thinking about it during the Dharma talk and then he would go on this bronco of craving element in the talk and so I, 
I think most of us can see it right then and there. When it, that's a very good question, though, but I think you can see right then and there if there's some suffering attached to it. I mean, I was about ready to pull it out of my pocket right then in a way, in certain ways, because sometimes on a retreat, you may be in a kind of an angsty position, and so certain things happen you wouldn't even think about at other times, but when so many of your sensory typical things are stripped away, that's what's so rich about a retreat, is you can really see what's really going on because there's so many fewer distractions than usual. That you certainly have your own distractions you create, but it was very easy to see that I was suffering. And many times in my life, I just have this major thing that I want to have chocolate. I think, what is this about? You know, it's just, it's too much. It's, it's, it's more, let's just say, it's more than it, than it needs to be. But absolutely, enjoy good chocolate. I, I don't have any issue with doing that. Well, no, so, so you're and, talking and in about... In this case, though, I was doing it purposely. Purposely because I wanted to see what would happen. And I knew that the longer I was without it, and it was in my pocket, and I'd be going back to my own private place, you know, and not being able to talk to anybody or do my typical things I do in the world, that it was going to eat a hole in my... that it was going to create more and more craving. And it did. Because there were so many other things that I would ordinarily do, I wouldn't have even noticed the craving. I don't know if you understand. You know so it's a, it's a matter of degree. Yes, you're probably. About? So yeah. it, it wouldn't have been fair, so to speak, if you'd said, "Okay, I'm tired of thinking about this piece of chocolate. I'm just going to eat it now and get it over with." Yes. And yes. then go on. Yes. That absolutely. Would, that wouldn't count. <laughs> no, no. I don't. I don't think it would have been. I don't think it would have even been a problem, really. It's, it's more the idea that because he gave this talk, it seemed pretty synchronistic to me. And it seemed like a perfect opportunity to see what happened if I prolonged the amount of time all the way till the next day. And believe me, it got more and more. And then I started to think of it. It was really very useful because some, actually some of the craving went away when I was noticing what was happening when it was, the investigation was more interesting than eating it is what I'm trying to say. I saw that as that next morning went along. And then I thought, isn't this great? You know, I can't wait to, to see how much how much news I do get about this as I'm seeing when it comes up and when I want to eat it or when I'm getting a sense that it's even there because other times I'm just walking down the trail or sitting in the you know in the retreat or in the sitting uh, you know in the meditation it wasn't even a thing but when it was what was causing that chocolate and <laughs> chocolate in this case yes yes anybody else have any questions or here were the Thank you. I think too with the chocolate situation is that you were exploring the space between the craving. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You were exploring. You were That's right. The investigation. Going into that little space. Of mm-hmm. What's really going on? Pardon? Really crazy. Yes. Go into that space of you know pure spirit and what is going on here. Yes. Yeah. No, that's true. That's very true. Is it on? Yes, it's on. Okay. Well, um, can you hear me? So, um, thank you for your talk, Brent. I enjoyed it a lot. And I can get into a place where I obsess about things, you know. And um, I don't know how to make it stop. I mean, just kind of a brief example. I was thinking of buying this rug, you mm-hmm. know, and I... I, I I couldn't decide whether to buy it or not. I went to some kind of a seminar. I called my mother in the seminar. I talked to her for 20 minutes and thought, mm-hmm. yeah, I will do it. 
Then I got home and I said, no, this is the wrong thing to do. And I called up the guy who's going to install the rug and I said, you know, I, I don't want to do it. He says, okay, lady. So then, <laughs> then I called up my mother um, the next morning. She said, you cancel it? That's terrible. And so I called up the guy. Do you think you come after us? I said, I know I'm not, so there's no point in trying to, you know, to tell you otherwise. But he said, yes. So he came and I'm really glad I did it. But, um, you are glad. I'm glad I bought the rug. Good. But, Good. But, but I'm not glad I was nuts. I'm spinning a little bit. There's no good way in the future to sort of bypass this. It seems like I need to tell my mind, okay, later, or, you know, this is not now, or I don't know what to do. Thanks. Yeah. No. I... One one thing I've heard about decisions like that, and that, that's not an, an important life making life decision. Certainly, what you're talking about with the rug, but to look at both sides of it, you know, both sides of the issue, and if they seem to be in an equal place, then either answer will do. I always thought that was interesting because when you're on a horns of a dilemma, you're really not. It really means either one will do, but when it's a really serious, important decision, you will really, usually, if you really do still yourself and really contemplate what's happening something will come as the right thing in this is does this happen in really 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 important things or just something that's you know like a purchase like that I guess it happens when there's not a clear right answer yeah I mean, my first experience was being 16 and taking 20 minutes to choose a candy bar Right. And I kind of got that one solved. I, I just choose food very rapidly now. I say that. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I was too embarrassed to do that again. But, but I, I can do that. <laughs> I, I can do that with other things. Yeah. Yeah. It's not an uncommon thing. That's why I brought it up. Yes. Maybe she has some help for me. Well, one one thing I can say because I'm fairly quick on most decisions. Most. It, unless it's really important, then I do agonize. Some or really think very clearly or carefully, not necessarily always clearly, but very carefully about it. But my husband, I probably shouldn't tell his story on him, but it's so similar to what you're saying, and I don't think he would mind this because he's really noticed it. And so when he gets into one of those spins, he really feels, in the decision, he really feels though it's almost always about wanting to not be wrong and wanting to make the perfect decision, the right decision. And there's so much of that connected with it that if he peeled that off and he wasn't so worried about being right and being, you know, okay in the decision. And maybe when he was younger, you know, he simply could not be wrong. You know, if you did the wrong thing or you were the wrong, you know, this, there was not good consequences. It was a big deal. It wasn't very, there wasn't much ease around making a mistake in his upbringing. You do? Well, then maybe that's part of what's happening. It sounds like, sounds very similar to what he's talking about, but I don't know. You can talk to him about it. I'll make sure you guys talk to each other about it sometime. That's one thing that's so great about the Sangha. The Buddha said the Sangha is very, very important, a place where we have spiritual friends to talk about things that really matter. Yes. Could she get the mic? I wanted to get back to this subject of craving. <laughs> <laughs> that unhealthful mind state? You know, then you're almost kind of neutralizing the situation, and you so you can kind of it's not you have to have it, you can choose to have it, or you can choose not to have it. 
I think that equanimity thing, I mean, when I see Tan Jeff, this, this monk, I don't know how many of you have met him, but, you know, we spent some time at Metta Forest Monastery, which is his monastery, and he surely see and his monks, when I look at monks eat, and I've been privileged to see a number of them, you know, when we feed, we give them food and so on, they really seem to be enjoying their eating. While they're eating, they're enjoying their eating. But when they're not, they're not pulled toward that again, that thing. So I think that's maybe the, the crux of it, is that you're not thinking about your next meal when you need to be thinking about you know, something that's happening right here and now, putting you into this future place or this place not now. I think that's one of the key things to me. That's at least seems to me to be a main objective to be here instead of the meal that's coming up in you know three hours and that can happen on the cushion as well you go to a retreat and your mind it comes up with incredible things because you know you can smell something or uh, Christopher Titmus said that the, the uh, dining room is the mosquito breeding ground of, of, of um, judgments <laughs> on a retreat look at that person how could they eat so much how could they eat so little how could why would they make this food that doesn't you know there's not enough salt in it just all those things the dining room just is an incredible place on a retreat. Oh, yes. So food, it, let's face it, it's the basics of our sustenance. And, but, but craving, you know, any kind of craving? Okay, well, you, maybe it's because food is one of my, my things that you know, I really went off on the food piece. But, um, yeah, craving. I think the, the big thing that makes it either craving or not craving is are you settled or are you suffering about this thing that's going on? That's, that's what I think it is, is. Do you feel driven? Because often when I'll eat chocolate, I'm not even necessarily enjoying it, but I really wanted to have it and I'll, I'll just catch myself, I'm not even necessarily enjoying it that much. So it's really enjoying what you have when you have it, um, whatever it is. And you know, when you're not there, to be where you are now and doing and engage with what's going on now with your, in your environment. Your mind to the, to the, next the next and the next. You can satisfy that craving. Right, right. That's, that's what I would say, my experience. Oh, just one sec, okay? Uh, Loud. Yes. Yes. Doing what's what's really presenting itself now. Yes. That can be very wise. Instead of acting, yes, instead of acting on something right away, give it some space to see is this really something. And it sounds really, that's what you did. Even though you had some spin about it with the rug, I think, you know, it sounds like it was really a fine decision. But the spin in between, that's where the suffering was really in the whole thing versus now that you have it and you've decided it's really something that you wanted. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, why is it? But really having that interval, I love that part about that interval. When I read that, it just seems so true of any time that we're either abandoning or keeping healthy mind states or abandoning those that aren't, that space is really where it's at. And meditation and mindfulness is what enables us to have that space. And as he said, kind of have the space get bigger and bigger, or at least large enough for us to respond to in a skillful way. 
So I think we'll stop here. And I really appreciate your kind attention. And um, thank you very much. <laughs>